My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the August edition of the journal. Please read and enjoy this special edition of Frontline Gastroenterology, put together to celebrate BSG Live 2022, with the overarching theme, Moving Forward Post-Pandemic. The content reflects the breadth and strength of our speciality with first-class reviews written by speakers from and linked to content at the meeting. Greener Gastroenterology. We've rightly started with a summary of the BSG Climate Change and Sustainability Strategy written by Andrew Veach, the next BSG President. Of course, moving forward is about practicalities and for green endoscopy, there is an excellent summary from Lee Donnelly, including practical tips about things you can do to make things better. Many are easy wins, which are such powerful motivators to bring teams together to develop an effective long-term strategy. We've covered some basic science, including the microbiome. The gut microbiota play an important role in maintaining gut health through a symbiotic relationship with the host. Altered gut microbiota is a common feature of gut disease. However, understanding the development and function of the gut microbiota in health and the role in the inflammatory response is more complex. Sheena Cruikshank and colleagues review this in detail using the inflammatory bowel disease and necrotizing enterocolitis as examples both of which demonstrate common features of gut microbial dysbiosis and a dysregulated immune response. In comparing and contrasting these two diseases, common features are highlighted. It is clear from the discussion of recent advances and key areas of interest that the challenge of identifying a causal relationship between the microbiota and specific diseases is ever-present, but might potentially give us better insight into shared mechanistic pathways and better treatments long-term. We have a number of expert reviews covering different issues in inflammatory bowel disease. Matthias Zilbau's team from Cambridge discuss epigenetics in paediatric IBD, presenting a conceptual framework for disease pathogenesis. This includes discussion of the basics of epigenetics and just how hard this is to study. The potential involvement of epigenetics in IBD is considered in detail. Gordon Moran's team have pulled together an excellent review on imaging and inflammatory bowel disease current and future perspectives. This includes basic information about what the different imaging modalities look at and so help inform the best use of ultrasound, CT and MRI for the specific patient. The review includes a discussion on how best to differentiate inflammatory change from fibrosis, which we all know is not always straightforward but does impact on management. The authors explore the need to better absorb artificial intelligence to improve clinical performance. There's no doubt that the advent of anti-TNF therapies have dramatically improved clinical outcomes in IBD. However, primary failure, secondary loss of response and toxicity remain significant issues. There is an ever-increasing number of new options emerging or already on the market. In a comprehensive update, Aisha Akbar and her team review IBD therapeutics, what's in the pipeline, which is worth working through so we can at least 
find out what we might be prescribing next. Shaheda Din and colleagues review the complex issue of managing IBD in patients with previous cancers, particularly with increased use of second and third line immunosuppression. The authors review the evidence, treatment decisions can be challenging, the risk of immunosuppression related cancer is probably less than perceived, the risk of uncontrolled IBD versus cancer recurrence needs to be carefully considered, with open discussion with patients including around perception of and acceptance of risk. We have a few articles relating to esophageal disorders and gastroesophageal reflux. Anjar Dar and colleagues cover the important and rapidly advancing field of eosinophilic esophagitis, improving diagnosis and therapy, reducing the burden of repeated endoscopy. They discuss the criteria for diagnosis, best treatment strategies, long-term risks and how best to follow up. Based on current knowledge, long-term follow-up is essential, although it is less clear, for example, what the long-term outcome is including risk of stricture and the need for follow-up and serial endoscopies. It is well known that laryngeopharyngeal reflux, the backflow of acidic stomach contents toward the larynx, is associated with symptoms such as cough, throat clearing and globus, although less straightforward to decide if when these are presenting symptoms, they are secondary to reflux. It's even more complex when symptoms such as persistent sore throat and hoarseness are considered. Sabrina Bra and colleagues review this important topic, discussing in detail the ENT manifestations and complications of reflux, including how best to assess and treat. There is a strong emphasis on the multidisciplinary team approach, clinical assessment strategies and the direct role of direct visualisation of the pharynx and larynx, with a good and helpful discussion of the treatment options. The issue includes a number of excellent endoscopy papers. The potential for transnasal endoscopy is highlighted. Transnasal endoscopy uses an ultra-thin endoscope to visualise the upper gastrointestinal tract and is safe, well tolerated and resource efficient as an alternative to conventional transoral endoscopy. Jason Dunn's team discussed their experience and the practicalities with the provocative title Transnasal Endoscopy, Moving from Endoscopy to the Clinical Outpatient, Blue Sky Thinking and Esophageal Testing. Familial adenomatous polypoiesis, prevalence 1 in 10,000, is a hereditary disease that, without intervention, will cause nearly all patients to develop colorectal cancer by the age of 45. The crucial role of endoscopy in patients is reviewed by Andrew Hopper. Colonoscopic screening should start from age 12, with then annual surveillance in affected cases, extending to two yearly in patients with a low polyp burden. This will inform the timing of colectomy. The important practicalities of post-colectomy surveillance are discussed in detail. Upper gastrointestinal surveillance, duodenal polyps almost inevitable, should start at around age 25. Patients clearly require structured management within a specialist centre to best manage the condition and, the evidence suggests, markedly reduce the risk of cancer long term. The diagnosis and management of Lynch syndrome is reviewed by Kevin Monaghan and colleagues. Dominantly inherited cancer susceptibility syndrome, 1 in 400, 5% aware of the condition. 
The authors discussed the need to look for it in all new colorectal or endometrial cancers. Patients diagnosed through that route or through family screening require lifelong multidisciplinary input, including colonoscopic surveillance starting from 25 to 35 years, depending on the specific pathogenic variant. Aspirin reduces colorectal cancer risk by 50%. Prophylactic hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy should be considered for specific variants. The guidance is detailed and helpful. Pancreatic medicine is increasingly recognised as a speciality in its own right. Pancreatic cancer is one of the most important causes of cancer-related mortality among all solid organ malignancies, with less than 20% of patients eligible for potentially curative resection. John Leeds and colleagues discussed the role of the pancreatobiliary physician as part of the extended multidisciplinary team in the management of inoperable pancreatic cancer. The cornerstone of management is palliation to improve quality of life with early engagement with palliative care services. The authors discuss various issues including the analgesic ladder, symptoms and management of gastric outlet obstruction and pancreatic exocrine replacement. There is a nice table detailing areas that need assessment and management. It's a very helpful article which effectively summarises and contextualises interventions that are likely to be helpful in the patient with inoperable pancreatic cancer. We finish with a number of articles relating to hepatology. In hepatology, like all other specialities, multidisciplinary teams are a core of good medical practice relevant to assessment, diagnosis, treatment and follow-up. Dermot Gleason's team discussed the interface between the clinician and histopathologist in the diagnosis and management of autoimmune hepatitis. Diagnosis is based on a combination of clinical, laboratory and histological information. There are many issues to consider. New histological criteria, acute versus chronic presentation, other conditions that might coexist, prognostic factors acutely and in remission, all nicely summarised in this excellent review. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is common with significant liver, cardiovascular and cancer-related mobility. William Alor Zawi's team review what's new in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This includes discussion of terminology, risk stratification for fibrosis, initiatives to develop biomarkers, lifestyle and behavioural change, the most effective management, and drugs under investigation, none of which are licensed. The increasing prevalence of this condition means that it is an important topic to keep up to date on. Mark Wright and colleagues cover the important topic of symptom control in advanced chronic liver disease, integrating anticipatory palliative and supportive care. Very much an opinion piece as there's a real lack of evidence. It is clear, however, that this is an increasing issue with the increased prevalence of chronic liver disease. The article includes barriers and practical strategies. There is a strong emphasis on an open and honest discussion, better symptom control, pharmacological and non-pharmacological, and the active and best use of the multidisciplinary teams to bring together and best use the available resources. 
This includes management of refractory ascites, which is covered in a multi-centre consensus document on behalf of the British Association for the Study of the Liver and the British Society of Gastroenterology. Palliative long-term abdominal drains for the management of refractory ascites due to cirrhosis. I'm very excited by this issue. I'm excited by the excellent content. The pandemic has impacted on us all in different ways. Within our speciality, we can now look to how we deliver the most effective and best care for our patients. There are multiple hurdles to overcome, but it's important to look forward. We've learned much about many things we need to take forward, including the rapid developments in telehealth, the real opportunity for effective virtual consultations with patients and their families, the rational and best use of investigations, and the opportunity through a combination of face-to-face, -face, hybrid and virtual meetings to communicate better with each other. The recovery period is about refining all of this and using new developments and initiatives to enable us together to better manage patients, improve quality, research collaboratively, and so improve outcome for our patients. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read, enjoy, and feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter, engage in our regular Twitter debates, and listen to the podcast accessed via the journal website. I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening. Music